Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside David Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you, Dave? Great. First visit from family out to Texas. Uh, most of us are Irish, which means the, the goal uh, every yearly anniversary is to continue to have the anniversary yearly. You Very know it's good. a fail if you're planning for 2025. So we're three days in, uh, a couple arguments. It's a, it's a contentious age, but um, it's still four days left. We could, we could turn this around and okay. begin to plan things for 2021. So I'm, 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 I'm hoping. Okay. And, and nothing, nothing of it has to do with me. I am a, a, a wallflower, peace-loving individual, as you know. I never stir the pot. So whatever's gone wrong in the last two days, I've had no part of it. That's good. No, I've always known you do that way. So that's stay out of confrontation. Always, always the peacemaker. Well, speaking of which, some disappointing developments for you probably out of Seattle, where Chaz has become Chop, uh, which isn't quite the same thing as a nickname. I don't know if you were following that a little bit, but apparently they're no longer autonomous. They're just occupying. Okay. So they had to go Chop. Capitol Hill occupied protest rather than Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Apparently they still need local water and utilities among other things. And so it's not actually a new country after all. So I, I don't think chop Corbin, maybe chopper like, but that would have been like uh, California highway patrol. So I, I think, yeah, I, I'm probably, probably not going to return to Chaz. I, I have enough names as it is. So we'll, we'll, we'll stick with those. Yeah, it feels a little 70s. Okay. All right. Well, you got to keep moving forward. Yeah, we had a good week. It was our anniversary. And right behind me on the bookcase, you can see a new item, which is a, a bust of Alexis de Tocqueville, my wife got for me on eBay, which is pretty cool. Made a number of years ago by a guy who worked on Disney movies, of all things. And so I now have that along with a copy of Democracy in America to give us inspiration for the show. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, we had, we had a good week. Now, last week, we were looking at the beginnings of a conversation on the pursuit of justice, and we focused on the move from protest to politics, inspired by Bayard Ruskin's essay of the same name from 1965. Now, we talked about pursuing justice with urgency, wisdom, and charity. And this week, we're going to pick up that conversation in some ways where we left off, thinking about pursuing justice with persuasion, literacy, humility, and mercy. So we're trying to get a sense of what it means to aim for justice, to accomplish justice by just means. And so we've got some more interesting readings to reflect upon and some more headlines to take a look at as we head down that path. So let's, let's turn to those headlines now as we see the kind of illiberalism that's beginning to emerge. And we've, we've seen this for some time. We've seen the Twitter mobs, uh, but it seems like it's been ratcheted up in intensity. And the examples of this are, are, are coming fast and furious. So over at National Review, they've got a, a list they're compiling, the cancel counter. And you know, it's a real mix, right? There's certainly some things on the list you'd say, you know what, I'm not sure we need that after all. But there's other cases that are real head scratchers. And there's a lot of evidence 
that a lot of action is being taken based upon passion rather than judgment. So let me just give you a little taste of this. The last few items on their list as of Friday morning. Last night, there was the toppling of the statue of George Washington in Portland, Oregon. Previous story concerned the shutting down of a cafe in Omaha, Nebraska, after two days of protests, which had been triggered by accusations that the owner's son had made racist posts on Facebook and that there was an item on the menu called the Robert E. Lee. Now, you work a little further down, and the 42nd item on the list is a story out of San Diego that's gotten a little bit of attention in the last few days, where a man named Emmanuel Cafferty, who's a Mexican-American, had been driving a truck for the San Diego Gas and Electric Company. He was fired after a person who was driving and pulled up next to him thought he was making a white power symbol with his fingers, which were hanging out the window down the side. And so the passerby took the photo, uploaded it to Twitter. The passerby was on the, on the way to a Black Lives Matter rally, and this was in relative proximity to that rally, and so took this to be something of a, of a white power protest against that Black Lives Matter rally, and then broadcast it to the world. Well, the company investigated very rapidly, and essentially over a weekend, as, as he tells his story in a, in a radio interview I listened to, uh, decided to fire him. What he says is, He's just stretching his fingers. You know, he's a guy, he says, in the back half of his 40s, drives a lot, his fingers get stiff, he stretches his fingers. And if you look closely at the picture, the symbol he's supposedly making, it's not really quite that. So we got a case where somebody takes it upon themselves to do Twitter justice. And the company responds with this very quick investigation and and the guy's gone. He's gone from what he calls his dream job, six months into what he hoped would be a 20-year or so tenure on, on the way to retirement. This is where we are, right? We've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we can go through this whole list, and there's probably some things you'd say, good riddance, you know, that, that statue wasn't really something we needed to value anyway. And others where you'd say, I don't have any idea what's, what's going on. What, what kind of snap judgment are we talking about? And then some cases that are probably in between. But what's striking in all these instances is just how little process there is, how little effort to collect facts, reflect, make rational judgments, evaluate evidence and all the rest. What, what do you make of it all, Dave? Well, use the phrase snap judgment. So what I might call this that we're seeing in each of these cases, and there may be differences in, in some rather than the others, but a, a snap judgment justice. And a snap judgment justice is, is not justice. It's not uh, equality before the law. And it can't be uh, because uh, everything uh, that happens in this world uh, has some sort of um, truth to it that uh, requires uh, patience. It requires uh, kind of seeing what happened, uh, reviewing the facts, and then making a judgment thereafter. But the snap um, judgment justice doesn't do any of that. And I think in the case you just mentioned of that uh, the poor driver, if the individual is looking for an injustice, if we're, if we're provoking injustice, 
you're 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 actually trying to um, bring on an injustice upon yourself, which is I think just absolutely wrong. And and um, there's there's plenty of injustice to to, to go around as as there is, uh, and we know this. But if you're looking for it, who who in fact is the person who's doing the wrong? The person who's looking and, and kind of provoking it, or the person who actually uh, rightfully deserves our condemnation for being unjust? Yeah. Now the interesting epilogue to all this is that the person who uploaded the photo has since deleted it and said that he never intended uh, Mr. Cafferty to lose his job. And let's take him at his word. And that wasn't the intention. I'm not sure what your intention is when you upload a photo like that to Twitter and send it out to the world. Uh, Obviously you're wanting some consequence. You're trying to do something, but let's take him at his word that he didn't intend for Mr. Cafferty to lose his job. Nevertheless, he has lost his job, and no doubt there will be a process here. I'm sure there's union grievances being filed and, and all the rest. What's striking, the radio interview I listened to with Mr. Cafferty was just how well he was taking it. Um, and they asked him, well, you know, what do you want, a big apology? You want lots of money? What do you want? He said, no, I just want my job back. And there was no fanfare. You know, he seemed like a person who was somehow rising above the passion of the moment and, and trying to figure out how you navigate a world that at least in his small corner of it seems to be spinning out of control. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of Americans out there like that, Matt, who are just, you know, wondering when that's going to happen to them. And, and hence people just, they, they turn silent. They don't say anything. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to, they don't want to act. And, and they're, uh, compelled not to act by anything that they see out there that suggests that anything that is against uh, wherever the culture is moving is is unjust, and I think that's uh, that's terrible. We we need to have an active, uh, participatory uh, citizenry who's, who's who's out there and working hard for justice, not one who's afraid that their next misstep is going to be uh, broadcast around the world. Yeah, and in this case, if we take Mr. Cafferty at his word. There's not even a misstep here, a, a person who's stretching his finger yep. in, a, in a way that another person misunderstands. So who knows? We don't have the facts. We're not going to try to sort it all out. And there may be more to the story as it unfolds. But, but the fact that we can move from a photograph to Twitter to a process that seems very rapid to the end of a job, end of a career, all that so quickly and with apparently so little effort to have any kind of basic understanding between the parties involved or any chance to respond in, a, in a, what seems like a reasonable way, all, all this is, is not the way to do justice. And of course, as we're at a moment where there's an urgency for justice, as we talked about last week and the week before, it's critically important that we actually advance the cause of justice. No one, no one ultimately does well in a world of, of summary judgments. I was going to say that it, it kind of reminds me of the only time I ever watched Judge Judy is when I was you know, getting my oil change or something like that. And it's kind of Judge Judy justice, right? Where um, there's no actually Judge Judy there to, to arbitrate between the two parties. And whoever has the, uh, the greatest means to broadcast their uh, antagonisms against another person will get to it. Uh, broadcast it, and the, everyone on their side is going to listen to it quickly and and condemn uh, the other person. So everything uh, against what we're trying to suggest here in these last two episodes. So it must mean we're doing a bad job. 
Yes, we'll, we'll keep working on that. A second story along these lines uh, that really has a personal connection for us. Over the last week, there was a report that went up on NBC News that Google, initially the report was that Google had demonetized the conservative website, The Federalist, along with another website, and that they had done so because of racism on the site. And that was the initial report. Now, sort of buried in the report, and you had to kind of tease this out, was the fact that the author of the article was actually a player in all this. So the author of the article had gotten a report from this British-based Center for Countering Digital Hate, which identified 10 American sites that they thought were responding to the Black Lives Matter movement with racism and had put together a report on that. And she took that report to Google and said, what do you think, Google? And so Google did whatever Google does. And then she reported that Google had demonetized these two sites that were among the 10 on that list. Now, what's interesting is that either she misreported or, or Google changed its tune because when they looked at it further, number one, there were no articles that had been deemed racist on the Federalist. It was only items that were in the comments, which are not even monitored by the Federalist. That's a third party that handles that. And, and they hadn't actually demonetized this site. They'd only threatened to do so if certain comments in a certain article were removed, which were subsequently removed. And so that's the end of it. But when you unpack all this, you have the striking fact that somebody working for NBC News, working in the news verification unit, apparently took it upon herself to go after these 10 sites, maybe these two in particular, and to try to get to a point where, obviously, if you're demonetized from using Google Ads, that's a major hit in terms of the financing of, of a web magazine, which is what the Federalist, the Federalist is. Now, I said this as a personal angle to it because for about a year and a half, not quite a year and a half, we wrote an essay every week on the Federalist papers. What is the Federalist? The Federalist is not as the article described it, some right-wing website. It's sort of mainstream conservative. It's provocative sometimes, as David... Harsani, who used to be a senior editor there now at National Review, wrote at National Review, sometimes it's very provocative. And he responds, so what? Uh, it's not racist. It's not far right. It's not fake news. This is mainstream right of center stuff. And NBC News is going after him. It's crazy. I I mean, I've read much more on the Federalists when we were writing for them. And, um, but I do, I mean, Molly Hemingway, uh, Sean Davis, the, the whole crew there, uh, I, I think there, there's a lot of excellent journalism there. And there's a lot of um, investigative journalism that's trying to get at the truth. And, and certainly it's, um, would, it could be rightly deemed center-right. But I do believe that um, if, if something happened that they had to report on in which there wasn't kind of a, a spin that could be made uh, by the right that that they either say that themselves or allow someone to write something on that. I, I always found them to be very intellectually honest. So I, I, I find this 
uh, it's problematic, but uh, you know, in a way, it kind of shows you just how uh, influential um, sites like the Federalist have become. And um, I think it speaks uh, in particular to a group of a very uh, interested uh, people who are willing to read a little bit more, do a little bit more homework uh, than than your average site, and and those are probably more dangerous sites these days, as we'll see in, in later on our coverage of this topic. Yeah. Now, the author of the article tried to kind of back off. She initially posted the story, and then kind of a congratulatory tweet to herself and those that were involved, and then said, "Well, I wasn't really a collaborator on this. I was just asking for comment. Tried to kind of arm's length it." But, you know, the story was generated, in essence, by NBC News, and they reported on NBC News. And, you know, there's, there's a happy ending in the sense that the Federalist is able to keep doing what the Federalist has been doing. But I think there were a lot of people that, that thought, well, okay, this is the kind of thing that happens to people that are beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. And we all kind of know where that line is. And even people on the left have grudging respect for respectable center-right outfits. And then you have this happen. And that was also the tenor on National Review. There were several pieces written about this. And National Review says, look, we're, why, why, why couldn't we be next? Why, why couldn't National Review be next? And, and then what's left of the conversation? Are they wanting really to drive out of the marketplace anyone who's going to be critical of them or challenge them in some significant way? That, that's, that's not the kind of message we normally hear from the First Amendment advocates of, of the media. Right? We hear a lot about free press, but are they willing to extend that freedom to those that they have deep disagreements with? Which I think in in summary, Matt, I think that we need to really do everything we can to resist that authoritarian temptation to settle differences by appeals to force. Last week, we referenced uh, Thomas Jefferson. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. And that's that's a true statement. But for those who don't want there to be any differences of opinion, if they're going to settle differences by appeals to force, then, then what they're telling us is that there's not going to be an allowance for any difference. Moving further and further in the direction of whatever pleases your ideology. Yeah, and, and the point that we're making is not, again, that there aren't websites to be condemned or monuments that should be removed or any of the other things that are on these lists, right? We, we're not... We, we're not able to investigate them all ourselves with the thoroughness that would be required to make an educated judgment, but that's exactly the point. That's not what's happening. And there's, there's this effort to judge a matter without any kind of serious investigation that, that leaves us all much the poorer when it comes to our ability to engage topics and difficult, challenging topics in a way that's rational, reasonable, generous, merciful, and then ultimately just. Which, which leaves us longing for required reading. Let's do it. <clears throat> Here's what's on the, uh, the required reading list uh, for today. I gave you a longer, I gave everyone a longer assignment uh, last week to read a 30-minute essay that really kind of tested uh, whether or not any of the readers could get through it all without being distracted. Even myself, the person who assigned 
essay uh, found uh, levels of distraction in that. But in addition to that essay, I, I think I want to begin today uh, with an address made by Abraham Lincoln, February 22nd of 1861 in Independence Hall. And I think it's very important to kind of read what he is suggesting here about making arguments. And this, this whole segment, these three segments, last week, this week, and next week, are about the pursuit of justice. And today's question or really theme is, what are the impediments to the pursuit of justice? So here's one. Persuading someone else of your argument is a very, very difficult task. So what does he write here in this address? He says, Mr. Kyler, I've never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. I've often pondered over the dangers which were incurred by the men who assembled here and framed and adopted the Declaration of Independence. I've pondered over the toils that were endured by the officers and soldiers of the army who achieved that independence. I've often inquired of myself what great principle or idea it was that kept this Confederacy so long together. It was not the mere matter of the separation of the colonies from motherhood, motherland, excuse me, but that sentiment in the Declaration of Independence, which gave liberty not alone to the people of this country, but I hope to the world for all future time. It was that which gave promise that in due time, the weight would be lifted from the shoulders of all men. This is the sentiment embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Now, my friends, can this country be saved upon that basis? A lot of what we're trying to do in this show in Democracy in America today is to understand what that basis is and to apply that basis to current events. Lincoln then says, if it can, I will consider myself one of the happiest men in the world if I can help to save it. If it cannot be saved upon that principle, it will be truly awful. So what is, what, what is he saying there? All men are created equal, and they're endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. Right? That speaks to this principle right, of equal rights for all, right? and, and impartiality for no one, privileges you know, for no one. And we're living in a world and a culture that is setting aside that principle, setting aside a lot of what that principle stood upon, the, the truth of Christianity that we are all made in the image of God, and replacing it with this new philosophy of intersectionality, of power, of identity, of wherever you stood in the past historically. And what Lincoln is saying here is the way forward for humankind is to understand the commonality that we have in being created in the image of God being created equal, and the tenuous nature of a regime that's built upon that truth. that doesn't live up to it perfectly, but it's built upon the truth. And he wants to save it upon that principle. But if it can't be saved upon that principle, that would be truly awful. And I think that that tells you uh, from from a standpoint of of a great statesman and philosopher what he knew that he was up against in 1861. And I think from that point on in American history, anyone who has embraced those ideals and those principles has been up against that same thing. We're up against it today, but it's, it's the basis upon which we enter into the fray. It's the basis upon which we argue. And if we can win on another basis, it's not worth winning. 
It gives you really three options here in this speech. One is that you keep the principle of human equality and you win. That's the outcome he wants. And he would love as president-elect to be able to help to save the country on those terms. The second option is you hold on to all men are created equal, but you lose. You, you don't know when you enter into political combat if the just side will win. It's, it's just not the case that justice has to triumph. Justice does not have to triumph in human things, and it's possible for regimes to improve and also for them to get worse. There's no reason to expect that we have to always be on this onward and upward path toward a greater measure of justice. We can lose our way. We can abandon truths that were previously affirmed. And so that would be awful. But then he says in the last line, if the country cannot be saved without giving up that principle, right, the only way to save it is to abandon human equality. He says, I was about to say I would rather be assassinated on this spot than surrender it. And obviously pregnant with irony, given the fact that he will die in essence um, for that principle four years later. But, but to recognize this is the nature of politics. You can't predetermine the outcome. And to stand upon the right doesn't guarantee success. But to abandon the right in order to save the regime, he says that, that's the worst outcome of all. To save the country, but at the expense of its moral heart. And that's, that's the choice that he feared would have been made by others were he not in that office. Save the union, sure, but abandon human equality. Can we save a union worth saving? That's always the project for Lincoln. And to do that requires affirming, reaffirming, committing yourself, recommitting yourself to the principle of human equality. And there's something about and being in the fray that will draw you away from the principle that led you to go into the fray in the first place and to try to defend. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it'll, um, it'll persuade you not to use persuasion to get your end, but to use force. Like we've all been in the situation where we know we're right. And, and, but we just, we say mean things or we, we, we try to win. We try to batter rather than uh, work toward peace. And I think that there's a lot of battering going on uh, right now. And, um, I think we definitely, you, know, you and I both, I think, agree on a lot of things, but we've really got to be aware of that tendency to want to batter our way to victory. And the more power you have, the greater the temptation to use force rather than persuasion, because Agreed. you don't have to persuade today, even if you may regret that you didn't choose to persuade tomorrow. So the second piece that, that I signed, I actually signed last week because it was so long, uh, was Adam Garfinkel's piece, I think, is very much linked to persuasion. How can you persuade someone of something uh, unless you have literacy yourself? And when you're writing, right, you, you, um, you assume that there's literacy in the people that you're writing to, right, that, that the people will know what you're referencing and when you're making an argument. They'll know what logic is. They'll know what fallacy is. They'll have a, an understanding of this, these important uh, reference points in history. And what Garfinkel uh, argues at National Affairs is that a greater percentage of Americans, this is to quote Garfinkel, may be what he calls deep literate in 2019 than they were in 1819 or 19, 
but probably not then in 1949, before television, the internet, and the iPhone. He goes on to say, we have reached the stage at which many professors dare not assign entire books or large parts of moderately challenging ones to undergraduates because they know they won't read them. And while more Americans are graduating from four-year colleges than ever before, the educational standards of many of those institutions and the distribution of study away from the humanities and social sciences suggest that a concomitant rise in deep literacy has gone unrealized as the degree factories turn. We're both college professors, Matt. We, I'm putting together my syllabus or syllabi for the fall term one and fall term two at Providence Christian. And I'm always reminded of something like a great professor of ours, Jennifer Spronson, who teaches education at our school said, you got to remember that a lot of our students who are entering into college have not read a book in full since fourth grade. Now, any of our listening audience who hears me say that, please ask your son or daughter, when's the last time that you read a book in full? And I'm, I'm sure there are some of our listening audience who train their children up to be readers. But we all know, just go to a, a super, uh, excuse me, grocery store, uh, go out and see how many kids are on their phone whose attention is paid to their phone and realize that we've been kind of pulled away uh, from reading. We've been pulled away from literacy. And what, what he's arguing here is that being pulled away from reading the written word disables us from entering into an exercise in which we understand differences of opinion. We understand the complexity of the world. Uh, without even kind of using the word metaphysics, we, we kind of understand the ebb and flow of life, the challenges of life, how logic plays and doesn't play a part uh, in the world that we live in. And if we don't have an attention span beyond 10, 15 seconds, we're not going to be able to tap our minds into a reality that we need to know and need to know well uh, in order to be able to understand political arguments as to what the good is, what justice, justice is, the truth. One of the challenges I think we find is that because we have our habits retrained by smartphones and other technologies that are ever-present, we in some sense don't even know what we're missing out on. Garfinkel references an author who 10 years ago wrote a book essentially about how he was regretting how he couldn't read like he used to. And it wasn't that he'd lost some cognitive ability in the sense where I just gotten older and I'm not at the height of my powers anymore intellectually, but he was reflecting on how the technology that he was engaging with had actually made him worse at something that he once knew he could do well. And the challenge is, and this is where Garfinkel's article seems to be going, is that we're raising a generation who never got there in the first place, who never had that experience of deep literacy, who never could sit with a book for two hours and become absorbed in an imaginary world of J.R.R. Tolkien or Jane Austen and be thinking about those characters as, as friends, as people that you'd like to talk to, as you're in some sense interacting with them. You're, you're, you're cross-examining the author even. Now, is that the right judgment that you've just made about that? Well, would the, should the plot actually go in this direction rather than that direction? There's a kind of absorption that can happen. He talks especially about fiction 
when you really enter into this deep literacy and deep reading, that it does things to your mind that open up new realms of possibility and, and new visions of thought that you're not otherwise going to be able to encounter. And if we can't do that, and we don't realize we can't do that, and no one around us is doing that, then we have a problem where we all maybe have some sense, boy, my attention span seems short. But, but compared to what? Because that's what everybody else's attention span is. And so I don't feel like my opinions are any less informed than anybody else's. My snap judgment isn't any more unreasonable than the other person's. And so we lose something that, according to Garfinkel's argument, is, is really a fundamental human quality of being able to judge through the kind of informed literacy that the written word allows. Yeah, I'll never forget uh, the fall of 1989 and uh, sitting in a class taught by John Kaiser at the University of New Hampshire where we read Plato's Republic. And I was, <laughs> I loved learning at a young age because I loved math, but I really didn't like reading that much. Um, I liked the reading the, the Boston Globe sports uh, page and Dan Shaughnessy and keeping up on New England sports teams. But when I got into high school, I just, I, I, I it was wrote, I, I just didn't have any, I, I didn't have any deep literacy, but I remember the first time that Dr. Kaiser introduced me to the idea that these questions that uh, Plato is putting forth in the person of Socrates and Glaucon about what the best life is, these are questions that pertain to you. You have an opportunity as a 17 or 18 year old to enter into this conversation. If you don't, you're very much like the walking dead. And, and that left such an imprint upon me that I wanted to be that person who shared that like, other world experience of deep literacy with others. And uh, it, it reminds me, I'll just say real quickly, we haven't mentioned Tocqueville yet, even though this is episode five. And uh, Tocqueville writes um, it famously in Democracy in America that Americans, more than any other people, uh, very much practice a, a, a Cartesian philosophic method. And the way I always teach this is that we're, we know Descartes by I think, therefore, uh, I am. And the, the emphasis for Americans is on the I. Uh, if, if we live simply as I's, you know, that are kind of uh, solely uh, thinking about what things mean to me, and we can't uh, commune with an idea with another person in a dialogue, then that type of an Americanism of, of I-ism of I think therefore I am is a very, very dangerous thing. One that Totoko will say later on will lead to the tyranny of majority opinion because we get so scared of actually, uh, well, we get out of the practice of communing with one another and with great ideas that we turn to herds define our actions to define what's right, which I think is going on a lot as we see earlier in this conversation. Now, I think one of the things that that's pointing to and that the Garfinkel article is also pointing to is a kind of intellectual humility. Ironically, and of course, Plato is, Socrates is, is the example par excellence of this, that, that as individuals grow in wisdom, part of that wisdom is a recognition of what they don't know and an appreciation of the limits of what they've understood. And so to have opinions that are wisely formed 
the more you learn in some sense becomes more difficult. You become more interested in qualifying those and, and making sure you've got the nuances just so. And if we never get that deep learning that we miss out on the lessons of humility that an encounter with great authors can often teach. I was going to say, it's liberating, Matt. It, you, you begin to say, oh my goodness, the, the feast that is before me, um, how, how awesome is it going to be for me to, to kind of dig deeper and, and to spend two hours on this each day? It's, 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 humility is, is a very joyful experience if you, if you can get there because you wonder is, is amazing. Yeah, so we're you know, reminded of Augustine and his confessions and as he works his way through whole series of intellectual schools and he finds them all wanting. He sort of gets to a point where he understands the school perhaps better than its best advocates. And yet it doesn't have the answers to the questions and he finds that it's not good enough. And finally he comes to Christianity and to Christ, but rather than kind of this triumphant discovery of now I have super wisdom and I can lord it over everybody, it goes the other way. He's, he's brought to his knees and brought to a point of confession that it's God who has opened his eyes. It wasn't the great powers of Augustine's intellect, as, as mighty as that was, that Augustine attributes to his understanding. No, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's mercy and opening up to him truths that were too deep for him and yet in some sense also simple enough for a young child to appreciate yeah that i mean you you see both in his confessions and the city of god you see that humility in the former work but then you see this literacy about matters philosophical and matters historical he puts this all together and i think he, he comes up amazed at how all things philosophical, historical, and theological intersect at the cross. And that is a, a, a reaffirming moment for him, this intellect that could have been very arrogant, but that stresses humility throughout this work. Yeah, so we mentioned four words at the beginning of the program, persuasion, literacy, humility, and mercy. And I think mercy has been entwined with all of this, but but to recognize the need to persuade, to do that based upon a deep understanding of that which actually is, to have the humility that comes with an encounter with serious ideas and the exchange of serious ideas leads, leads one to mercy, leads one to an appreciation of one's own weakness that allows one to extend mercy to others in an accounting of, for their weakness. And so I think as we, as we try to plot this pathway to justice, we're going to say more about you know, the pursuit itself and the objects of justice in our next program. But as we, as we think about this in light of these readings, right, there's, a, there's a picture here for us that, that is deeply embedded in, in Christianity and its account of, of who we are as human beings that shows us a pathway forward that, that heads toward justice in the richest sense, and yet does so in a way that, that can bring everybody along, right? that can bring people along rather than simply condemn, divide, bludgeon, and defeat. 
We're running out of time, Matt. The Shakespeare scholar in me wants to mention measure for measure, but that's for another show. So we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, we've got our two remaining segments. Uh, First, opening the grade book. And this week, we're going to go back to sports. We've been waiting for sports to restart. We had a chance last week to make some predictions for the Premier League. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But we've been especially waiting for, for baseball to return. And it seemed like three, four weeks ago, baseball was on the point of returning. There was a a plan. The owners seemed to be behind it. There seemed to be some optimism that this could go forward. 82 games, at least half the season, basically. Extended playoffs, and, and off you go. And here we are a month later, and there's still no deal. So our grade book is a simple one for this show. We're going to grade the owners and grade the Players Association. What do you make of all this, Dave? What grade do you give the owners? Let's start there. I mean, I give the owners a higher grade than the players. I, I think that the whole idea of prorating has to account for uh, fans in the stands. If they're not there, I'd ask, well, what percentage of all MLB revenues come from attendance? I'd have an accounting firm, if need be, like figure that out so that it's understood by both players and, and uh, owners. And if that's something like 40% of all revenues for the MLB come from stands and they're not going to allow that to happen, okay, that money's cut from the top. And you're left with about 60% of, um, I don't know if that's the number, but you're left with 60% of revenues. And then you prorate from there. Uh, But I I don't see how it's fair to not account for the fact that there won't be any fans in the stand stands. So I, I, that's, that to me, I, I, I mean, I give them maybe a, a C. I, I don't know why they haven't been able to make that argument better. Perhaps they've tried to make it behind the scenes. But I, I, I think their argument right now is better than the players one, as long as that, that's clear. Yeah, it's been very frustrating because obviously there's got to be some accounting for the fact that you don't have that revenue. Now, it seems like the owners have been, well, have they been negotiating in good faith on this? They've sort of been calling the players bluff over and over again. And there hasn't really been a lot of an effort. It seems like at a meeting of the minds. So the owners make an offer that is dead on arrival for the players. The players respond with a dead on arrival offer for the owners. And so we're, you know, we finally got to the point in the last few days where the owners are saying 60 games, full prorated salary, the players are saying, no, 70 games, and there's a few other revenue things around playoffs that divide them. But it feels like surely we can just say, okay, 65. Can we just start playing? But, of course, 65 is a ridiculously short season. I mean, you know, it's like the NFL playing six games and then heading off to the playoffs onto the Super Bowl. So, you know, it's, it's already at the point where the delays have cost us any kind of season that's going to have – historical integrity you have some games people will add to their you know career totals but the batting averages won't be meaningful the eras won't be meaningful the you know the the numbers around baseball right no one's going to hit 30 home runs no one's going to hit 100 rbis and the whole race to the playoffs will be so different from what it normally is it's just going to be a different sport and i think they had a chance to do better than that but they just couldn't couldn't make it work i'm gonna get the owner's uh, a C minus on this. I'm going to just say I'm going to give the players a D. I think they've been 
at the margins a little bit more unreasonable, a little bit more unwilling to negotiate. You know, a pox on both their houses. We could have started July 4th with some great celebration of America's pastime on America's birthday. And now we're talking about late July, quick race to the finish, get the postseason done, and, and start talking about next year. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in contract negotiations right now with Providence Christian in Pasadena, and I'm aiming for, I mean, I, I make $10.7 million a year uh, as their VPAA, and you know, I said I'd go down to $8 million. So, I mean, and part of me understands, you know, what the players are going through here. You're a fair guy. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty reasonable of you to offer that kind of discount. And well, uh, part of what yeah. I'm doing is online. So I, you know, I figured, you know, right. Give, give the college 2.9 million. That's good to know those numbers. That'll give me a starting point for my next round of negotiations at Kings. Good. All right. So we're going to wrap it up with our crystal ball segment and here's how it works. We make a prediction for the week to come and whoever is closer or gets the prediction, right gets to set the terms for the next week's prediction. I've been on a good roll coming into this week, but Dave, you got me this time. Uh, you, you know the Premier League better than I do. It was closely contested. It really came down to the score of the Aston Villa-Sheffield United match. Uh, you said 1-1. I said 2-2. It was 0-0. So at the margins, you're a little better. We were both pretty close on Manchester City-Arsenal. Thankfully, Arsenal lost uh, 3-0 as it turned out. I said 3-1. You said 2-0. So we were both pretty good. Let's face it. We're both pretty good at this. But, but you win. And so what have you got for us this week? On my way back to California from Texas, I'm definitely stopping in Vegas. And I think from now on, uh, Premier League bets will be like front and center. In my mind, I'll make a lot of money off of this. The seven minutes I did in research on this, uh, reap me more rewards than any fantasy football uh, research I've ever done. So um, well, you got to make up for that 2.9 million you're given over to, to Providence. Of course I've got to figure out a way, but um, so I finally get uh, to, to make a or have us um, predict something. And uh, here, here's what I want to do. I, I, I've kind of noticed we, we we're on Podbean and we notice who our listeners are that we're not in the tens of thousands yet but we're only in week four. We're just starting. I mean, we're, we're still in the double digits, but I, I noticed to, to um, the credit of my California um, base and my Texas base, that California and Texas have been creeping up on your base of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Like when we started out, we, we had seven listeners. No, I'm kidding. We had a lot more listeners from your area than mine. And then it's just turning around. And so here's my thing. Will there be more new and total listeners from California and Texas for this episode than Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey? And I'll throw in Connecticut and Rhode Island for you. Rhode Island of, too. Wow. Okay. I'll th- Rhode Island for you. So if, you, if, if your listeners know people in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Yeah, we're, we're huge in Providence. Yeah, exactly. Because they mistake us for that. But, but it's, it's California, Texas versus PA, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island for amount of listeners this week. What do you say? What do you predict? 
Okay. I, I'll take my home. Yeah, no, I'll, I'm, I'm not afraid. I, I realize I'm giving you probably 20 million people there. I mean, California plus Texas, that's, that's a big slice of the American demographic pie. And, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, all, all respectable in size. But I think I'm still spotting you 20 million people, but that's okay. That's okay. I all think right. we can do it. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that the Northeast appreciates a good podcast when they hear it and is willing to maybe step up their game even a bit in the week to come to put me over the top. So don't let me down. All our listeners in California and Texas, uh, don't mess with Texas or California this week. Share the podcast uh, with friends and, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be victorious. It may be the only uh, alliance that Texas and California make in some time. So I need you. Now, the thing that is a little bit disappointing for me is, you know, my wife's family is from Texas. So I'm going to have to tell them stay off the pod this week. Rachel, Rachel, don't let Matt do that. No, we, we're going to we, have to, you know, we were going to try to, I mean, it's, it's a big family. So we're going to try to blast it out to them, but we'll have to wait a week on that because I certainly don't want to lose this crystal ball challenge because my wife's family ended up listening in too many numbers. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. You can check in next week to find out just who is able to pump up the numbers the most. Don't forget, you can always follow us, listen to us. You can subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, on Spotify, and on Stitcher. That's all we've got for this week. We look forward to being back with you next week as we wrap up our discussion of the pursuit of justice. Mm -hmm.